0: Well, good morning. Delighted to be back uh, here at uh, Trinity Church. Uh, excited about the opportunity to share from God's Word with you today. And I think we have a PowerPoint coming up. Uh, if not, I can do PowerPointless too. Uh, that's a joke. Anyway, good morning. Uh, it's wonderful to have a chance to share with you. I'm just back uh, from being in New Zealand. So if my voice uh, sounds a little gravelly, it's because I caught probably the worst head cold I've had in about 10 years. So I'm going to try to be cautious with my voice today, which is why... Ah, good, we do have the PowerPoint. Uh, I'm going to give you a little uh, quick direction here, and that is uh, we're going to read from the Scriptures uh, together... And when we come up to the Scripture passages, they'll be on the slides, and I'll ask you to stand and read. And what you're going to notice is that as I'll start the reading, and then I'm going to let you guys carry it, and that sort of preserves my voice. So hopefully I'll be able to get through uh, this morning without any, any problems. Well, I have a question to begin with. Um, over this past spring and summer, I have a feeling that some of you have had an interesting experience. Uh, you have noticed a a for-sale sign go up in houses in your neighborhood and then later come down as new families moved in. How many of you have experienced that this summer? Okay. Well, if you notice, it's just about all of you. This is a pretty universal thing, isn't it? And in fact it happened uh, on our little cul-de-sac. My wife and I live on a little tiny cul-de-sac. There are just four houses there. And the couple across the street announced in the late spring that they were leaving. Uh, And the for sale sign went up in front of their house. And then just a few weeks later it came down and we found out that a new family was moving in. Uh, And that move took place while we were overseas. My wife was in Sweden uh, visiting with the grandkids, and I was in New Zealand uh, doing some teaching at a college there. And we came back, and it was a new family. And uh, you know, we live in a world of constant motion, don't we? A world in which people are moving uh, sometimes across town, sometimes across the state, and sometimes across the nations. And it got me to thinking, what is God's purpose with migration? And, you know, it's interesting. When you go into the Scriptures, you discover that this is a huge theme. Uh, it's everywhere in the Bible. In fact, you might say that it's really part of God's very first command to humanity. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, uh, God, when he creates humankind, male and female, in his image, he gives them a command. He says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Now, to fill the earth means movement, doesn't it? Migration. And if you study the history of humanity, our history is a history of migration. Interestingly enough, in the last hundred years, the uh, speed and the frequency of migration uh, is increasing all the time. Uh, There is just a constant move. You know, my dad worked 35 years at the Department of Chemical Engineering at UMass. There are very few people today who will spend 35 years in the same job. Uh, We are a people in constant motion And it's wonderful to know that the God of the Bible is not only aware of that, to a very real degree he designed it and he has a purpose for it. So today I'm going to explore the theme, God of the Refugee, Migrant, and Minority, one of the central themes of the Bible and church history. And we're going to look at various passages in the Scripture, and then we're also going to look at some historical vignettes Uh, from the church and see how God has used this particular pattern. Now, our first passage that we're going to look uh, at today is uh, probably one of the best-known passages uh, in the Bible. We often call it the First Great Commission or the Old Testament Great Commission, and it's the commission that God gave to Abraham. So if we move to the next slide... And you remember Abraham, of course, at this point in his life, in chapter 12 of Genesis, his name is Abram. God hasn't changed his name yet. Uh, But we're introduced to Abraham at this stage and to an initial um, purpose and plan that God had for Abraham. And God gave Abraham a command with a promise. And so I'd like us all to stand together We're going to read this uh, particular passage and then talk about God's purpose in that. And I'll get us started and then we'll recite it together. Now the Lord said to Abram, Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for helping me on the reading there. Um, We call this the Great Commission of the Old Testament because this is really where God's special plan of salvation begins to take shape. He calls out this man, Abram, and he tells him, leave. Leave your father's house, leave the lands of your birth, and go to the place that I will show you. And God's purpose is that in the process of doing this, Abram is going to meet God in a wholly new way. Eventually, his name will be changed to Abraham. And in the process, he will come to know the living God. And by that knowledge, he will be blessed. And then he will be a blessing. He will spread the knowledge of relationship to God To all the nations this is really the beginning of God's special plan of salvation for the human race and I find it interesting that it begins with a migration it begins with a movement by the way sociologists tell us that when people move they go through a crisis that is akin a little bit less but akin to the death of a spouse okay in other words when you move Uh, even across town but especially if you move out of state you go through a crisis you go through uh, a ripping out and a setting down in a new location you lose your former community and you suddenly are confronted with living in a new place and trying to find a new way to make community and try to figure out such interesting details is uh, where can I find a reliable plumber Anybody here ever ask that question? You move to a new place, you bought an older house, and suddenly the plumbing springs a leak? I've had that experience this summer. We've had a leaky toilet. Anybody here ever had a leaky toilet? Okay. You know that it's really important. Uh, Who cares about all the other stuff? If you can find a good plumber, by the way, that's a good career option for some of you young people. Uh, Believe me, the world is in need of plumbers. They don't need any more PhDs, but they do need plumbers. Okay, the reality is that we move into a new location. We don't know many people. We've lost our old community. We don't know who's reliable. We're vulnerable. Uh, I remember this uh, when my wife and I moved into a house in a particular neighborhood uh, in Bangladesh. We had just gotten settled there, and within a week of our arrival, uh, robbers made their way into our house, uh, broke through the skylight, came down into the house, were wandering around the house stealing stuff. One of my kids woke up and saw them and screamed at the top of his lungs, and I can remember running to his bedroom and comforting him. He was too young to be able to explain to me what was going on. I probably had the robbers standing all around me. Without my glasses, I'm blind as a bat. Anyway, um, thankfully I didn't see the robbers, but the next morning we discovered their handiwork. Why do robbers rob newly moved-in people? Simple. They haven't got their security system down. They haven't figured out what the neighborhood is like. Any of you ever had that experience? Moving to a new house and getting robbed immediately? Okay. I'm glad. Nobody else but us. But the reality is you're vulnerable. And so oftentimes when people are in movement, they are open to new ideas. They're struggling and looking for meaning and purpose in life. They're struggling and looking for community. And churches that are aware of these things pay attention to people moving in and out of their homes. If you, since almost all of you raised your hands, let me make a suggestion. Have you been by to visit your new neighbors? And by the way, you don't have to go there to preach the gospel. Just drop in and bring some cupcakes or some chocolate chip cookies. That would work with me. And say, hey, notice you just moved in. Uh, Can I just tell you a little bit about our neighborhood? Would that be an interesting thing to do? Well, think about it. God works through the reality of movement. Let's move on to our next slide. And uh, here are some interesting things. Um, I like to call this the story of the Exodus from and the story of the Exodus to. If you think about it, there isn't just one Exodus that we read about in the book of Exodus where Israel goes out of Egypt. You actually have a whole series of Exoduses don't you? The first one happens when Joseph is sold by his brothers and he goes down into Egypt as a slave and eventually ends up in prison in Egypt. And you might call that an unwilling migration. He goes to Egypt unwillingly. Now, sometime after, probably 10 or 15 years later, another event happens in the Promised Land, which is a great famine. Remember that story? There's a huge famine in the land of Israel, and Jacob says to his sons, Go down to Egypt, because I've heard that there's food in Egypt that you could bring back to us. Again, an unwilling migration going down to Egypt because of famine in the promised land. Now, later on, of course, uh, Israel becomes uh, part of Egypt. They're successful initially, and then a new Pharaoh arises who oppresses them and isn't that often the cycle of migration you start out because of an economic need you move to a new place you get successful and then maybe people find you unpopular they don't like your particular group that's come to their country and oppression emerges do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers when they got nervous about the fact that they'd sold him into slavery Jacob had died and they're thinking how is he gonna take revenge on us now And Joseph says a really remarkable thing. He says to his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good in order that your lives might be preserved in the famine. God is in control of Joseph's unwilling migration to Egypt. God is also in control of the oppression that the Israelites eventually experienced in the promised land. He's also in control when Moses comes down and proclaims the word of the Lord, let my people go, and under duress eventually, Pharaoh releases Israel on a new migration back to the promised land. God is in control of our comings and our goings. Sometimes we go willingly. In the case of Israel going out of Egypt, well, of course, they went willingly as God was setting them free. In the case of the famine, they also went kind of under duress but also willingly to Egypt in order to get food. In the case of Joseph, it was entirely an unwilling going But they knew that God, ultimately God, uh, ultimately Joseph discovered God was in that too. Even in the unwilling going. Now some of you probably know missionaries uh, who have willingly gone to the ends of the earth to share the gospel with people. And that's another kind of a migration. Going to a new country, learning a new language, settling down with your family, becoming part of that community in order that you can share the good news of Jesus with them. But what about unwilling going in church history anybody here know any examples of unwilling going in church history well you know I'm Irish and I'm from Boston and you know what happens every spring in Boston don't you it's often associated with drinking green beer St. Patrick's Day celebration how many of you have heard of St. Patrick Oh, I should see most of the hands go up. He's a really famous guy. Uh, The great missionary who took the gospel to the cannibals of Ireland. And that's what they were before he got there. They were all cannibals. By the way, do you know how St. Patrick went to Ireland the first time? You know, most people don't really know the story of St. Patrick. But St. Patrick was a child when... uh, uh, sea farers uh, came to the coast of England doing raiding, and in the process of a raid, they captured this little boy and they took him as a slave back to Ireland. How would you like it if you were ripped out of your family, maybe saw your family killed in the process, and were dragged as a slave? to a land far away, speaking a language you did not understand by a people who were not Christian. You came from a Christian background. They were not Christians. They were pagans. They were cannibals who used to decorate their houses, the fence posts of their houses, with the heads of the people they had killed and eaten. How would you like to be in Patrick's position? Going unwillingly. Well, for those of you who don't know the story, let me finish because it doesn't end there. Patrick was a slave for about 10 years. Uh, He was a shepherd working for the cannibalistic Irish, and at about 20 years of age, he was able to escape from Ireland. He managed to get on a ship and got back to the coast of France, and he was totally indigent. He had nothing, no money, no clothes, hardly anything. So in those days, when you needed help, uh, you went to the monastery. And that's what he did. He went to a French monastery, and at that French monastery, he met Jesus Christ and became a Christian. And then suddenly, God put something on his heart that he could hardly imagine. God said, go back to Ireland. You went once willingly, uh, you went once unwillingly, now I want you to go back willingly to take the gospel and i've even heard secular anthropologists who hate christians and missionaries nevertheless wax eloquent about the brilliance of st patrick's strategy in bringing the irish to the christian faith of course i'm irish so i'm sort of i'm proud of the guy okay but isn't it interesting god's sovereignty god who uses going willingly as in the case of abraham or going unwillingly as in the case of joseph and leaving willingly such as Moses and Israel and maybe even today leaving unwillingly lots of Iraqi Christians now say we cannot go back to our homeland of 2000 years because Isis has so poisoned the area that everyone thinks Christians should just plain be killed so what do you do with Iraqi Christians who are living in refugee camps in Kurdistan saying they can't go home unwilling going after 2,000 years. Yet God is in the midst of that. And I just mentioned, think about that in church history. Do you have some examples of that going on in church history that you're aware of? Let's go on to our next passage. Anybody want to guess who this is? She has a book in the Old Testament named after her. This is Ruth and Naomi. Now, do you know the story of Naomi? Naomi. We usually think of Ruth first, but really the story begins with Naomi and, frankly, ends with Naomi. Naomi is uh, a woman married to an Israelite. She's an Israelite herself, and she has two sons. And then a famine comes to the land of Israel, and she and her husband decide to migrate, as often happens. You know, if you're living in the Rust Belt in Ohio... And uh, you've lost all your industrial jobs. And then you hear that Boeing's doing some hiring in South Carolina. So you decide to pull the family roots up and head down to South Carolina, see if you can pick up a job at Boeing. Okay? So Naomi and her husband head out to the land of the Moabites. And they decide to settle there because the pickings are better. It's a better situation. Well, it doesn't work out. Not at least the way they would planned. Her two sons marry some local girls, not unusual, you know. Uh, Some kid from Ohio runs into a nice Southern, South Carolina girl and says, wow, you'd be the right one for me for a lifetime. So they get married. Everything seems to be going well. And then Naomi's husband dies. That's a disaster to begin with. But then both of her sons die childless. So there are no children to carry on the name of the family. And the girls would normally do what girls would do, you know. Uh, Sorry, mother-in-law. Our husbands are dead. Time for us to find some new husbands and move into different families. You know, we sometimes blame Naomi. You know, at one point in the text, she says, Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mada, which means bitterness. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me do you remember when she says that now you're you're inclined to be a little judgmental having not gone through what she's been through but you know I'm impressed with Naomi there must have been something beautiful about that woman of God she did pour out her heart she talked about what had happened and she saw God as sovereign so she knew that God was permitting this and she was devastated but her faith was still strong, and the way I know that is by the reaction of Ruth. I don't know what attracted Ruth to Naomi, but Ruth obviously saw something in Naomi that she wanted for herself. She saw a genuine, deep-seated love for God, and so an interesting thing happens. If we go go to the next slide. Um, Naomi says to Ruth, well, your sister's gone back to be with her people. Why don't don't you do the same? And Ruth makes the following incredible statement. Would you all stand and let's read this together? But Ruth said, do not urge me... Amen. You may be seated. Is that not one of the most incredible statements of faith? Uh, Naomi had something right because this young woman, Ruth, looked at her life and she said, I want your God to be my God. I want your people to be my people. I may have gone through hell and the loss of my husbands and my sons, but I still have my God. And she doesn't return to Israel empty-handed. She comes with Ruth. And Ruth, as you know, becomes of the lineage of Christ remarkable remarkable story Un, a willing going a willing migration that leads to a willing return but empty-handed willing return some of you have experienced that somebody moved to get a job at Boeing and then the job didn't work out and they were stuck working at Bojangles okay And in that kind of a circumstance, your faith gets put through a test as Naomi's faith was tested. But then also that faith shined out, and people at Bojangles began to respond to the gospel. Get the picture? God uses migration, and He even uses the troubles that we go through in that process to illustrate the nature of what it means to know Him and to make us people who can make that message plain to those who don't know our God. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, let's go on to the next slide. Uh, just want to say one quick thing here. Uh, this is my only story for the day. Uh, this is kind of a fun one. When I got to New Zealand on my first day there, I struck up a conversation with a guy, a local New Zealander, Kiwi as they call themselves, and uh, he asked me what I do. And I said, well, I'm, I'm um I'm a teacher of intercultural studies and Islamics. Islamics, he said. Oh, are you a Muslim? And I said, well, no, I'm not, but are you? Yes, I am, he said. Why haven't you become a Muslim? Oh, my goodness, Islam is the best religion in the world. And suddenly, I was the object of an evangelistic appeal to come to Islam. And and it wasn't by a, a Middle Easterner. It was by a New Zealander convert to Islam. Well, you know, you think about something like that and, and, and you wonder, well, how? You know, I've got about 100,000 reasons why I'd never dream of becoming a Muslim, but you don't want to say those things, you know, because you'd be offensive. So what do you say? Well, I've got to say something from Muslims that I know who've become followers of Jesus. So I, I said to the, he's asking me, why, why haven't you become a Muslim? Why, you know, it's such a wonderful religion. And I said, well, you know, I, I'm a student of Daoud Rathbar. Have you ever heard of him? I said, no, never, never heard of the guy. I said he was a great scholar of uh, Persian and Arabic. And uh, back in the 60s, he wrote a thesis on the Quran, a PhD thesis, in which he tried to get to the bottom of what is the nature of God In the Quran the nature of God in Islam he wanted to do a theology if you will of God and when he got done he wrote a book entitled the God of justice and in that book he came to the conclusion that the God of Islam is a God of unmitigated justice meaning keep the law go to heaven break the law go to hell period no grace no mercy apart from obedience to the law. So I said that to this New Zealand guy, and I said, you know, at the end of his book, Daud Rahbar made a very powerful statement. The statement was simply this, and I quote, I cannot worship a God who does not understand human suffering. I cannot worship a God who does not understand human suffering. Well, the guy asked me, well, what did he do then? Because, you know, in Islam, you never leave Islam. That's punishable by death. You know, what did he do then? Well, I said, it's easy. He became a Christian. Because in Christianity, we have a God who migrated to earth to save us. And you know what Hebrews 5, 8 says? It says, Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Now, how does God learn anything, I said to my Muslim friend. How does God learn anything? God knows everything, right? But the word here is not learned in terms of intellectual knowledge. The word is learned as in experience. Okay? It's one thing to know about death. It's another thing to uh, to experience a death in the family gives you a whole different appreciation for what people go through when a loved one dies. And Jesus came to earth as God's great migrant to set us free from sin. And in the process, he goes through all the sufferings that a human being can possibly go through, yet without sin, And in the process redeems us. And so I said to my Muslim friend, why would I want to engage an Allah that I can't know, can't experience, can't have a relationship with him? Furthermore, why would I abandon a God who understands me, who loves me, who's experienced all of my sufferings and who can relate to the issues that I struggle with in life? By the way, law can't save you. Law can only show you your sin. So we need a savior. So it was kind of fun, you know, he started out trying to evangelize me and things got flipped around and it became, let's talk about Jesus. By the way, are you able to do that with the people in your neighborhood? Oh, I know, they might start out with some negative thought about Christians. Instead of being defensive or instead of attacking their position, how do you appeal to them from where they're at? I ask two quick questions here. How well do you know your migrant friend's life story? You know, when you sit down to somebody who's moved to a new area, they've got a story to tell. Are you ready to listen? I mean, really listen? Tell me, what brought you down to South Carolina? And uh, where did you come from before? Why did you have to move? Tell me a little bit about your family. You know, you can get uh, all kinds of rich understanding of another person when you do that. And here's the fun thing. When you go home, after you've had that conversation write down a few things the person said and turn that into a prayer card. Okay? Turn that into a prayer card. God, I'm going to pray for, and you can write their name down and just say, Lord, I just want to pray for this person, the things that they've shared with me, and maybe make that a regular, maybe a weekly prayer that you do. And then see if God doesn't bring you back in connection with that person again. And, you know, an under- interesting thing will happen the second time you meet them. You'll be talking, and you'll just ha- happen to mention something that they said to that person that said to you earlier. And that person will get a little shocked because they'll realize, oh, you were really listening. You actually heard what I said. And, you know, when you do that, you're unusual. We live in a culture where nobody has time to listen to anybody else. We only have time to send tweets, which are all about me, 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 what I think. People don't focus on other people very much in our culture today. When you do that, you're unusual. You're also attractive. And I think that that was what was going on with Naomi and Ruth. Yes, Naomi was going through hell. But Ruth understood something about this woman that is really different. And I want what she's got. So, how well? Do you know your migrant friend's life story? How well do you know their culture and their worldview assumptions? Well, I won't get too much into that. Let's go into to our next slide. I'm going to hop through a couple here fast. You know, one of my big problems is you don't have a clock in here. So I don't even know how much time I got left here. I'm having so much fun I could be here for another hour or so, but that might go a little bit too long. What time do you have, Margaret? 11.30. Okay, we're supposed to end about 11.45. Is that about right? I'm an accordion. You can shrink me or expand me as much as you like. Is that alright about 1145 is that good okay good um, hey we all know this guy I'm um, bounce to the next slide I'm not going to have you read that you all know about Jonah and in fact I think the last time I was here I spoke about Jonah with you guys so I'm gonna hop over this uh, just just remember that Jonah was called to people that he knew were a threat to his own nation and sometimes in working with migrants and working with people in motion you're gonna bump into people like Syrian refugees and your impression is going to be, ooh, ooh, here come the dangerous people. Well, maybe not. As many times, those people are the ones who suffered at the hands of the dangerous people. They might be the ones searching for a way out. And you might be the ticket. Does that make sense? So think about that as you work with people. Uh, here's my next favorite guy. Um, Daniel. You know the story of Daniel. Uh, He gets essentially kidnapped, not really kidnapped, but forcibly repatriated from Israel to Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar just takes a bunch of the young men and he says, okay, you're going to be my uh, court administrative slaves. And that's what Daniel was. He was a court slave, trained in all the wisdom of the Babylonians to administrate Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And uh, you know the story how Daniel eventually, because of his faithfulness to God, gets thrown into the lion's den. Uh, God preserves his life. And uh, in a very miraculous way, think about it. You've been forced to be a slave in another country, a little bit like St. Patrick. Then your faith is put to the test. You refuse to compromise your faith. And in the process, you're sentenced to death. And not just any death. Getting eaten by a lion? Yikes! This has got to be the worst possible ending to a story that you could possibly imagine. God is sovereign. He's in control of your circumstances. God shuts up the mouth of the lions in a way that the Babylonians had never seen in their history. And at the end of it, what's the the end result? A pagan king gets converted and he writes scripture. Don't believe me? Take a look at the next slide. This is what Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, Darius, this is after Nebuchadnezzar, this is when the Persians had taken over. King Darius, a Persian, sees what God has done in Daniel's life and he essentially writes a testimony that gets incorporated in the Bible. Please stand and let's read this together. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. amen thank you you may be seated what a powerful picture we see here Daniel a slave forcibly taken to Babylon eventually becomes the message of grace to a pagan king who confesses the God of Israel as the one true God of the universe what a powerful picture whether you go willingly or unwillingly whether you arrive willingly or unwillingly God is sovereign in every circumstance in life. When someone moves into your neighborhood, God is sovereignly in control of that reality. Some new person that you meet at work who's just started working at your place of business. Uh, Someone that you've met at the local park. You're pushing your baby's wagon around and you sit down next to another new mother. That's a sovereign moment that God has put you together for a purpose. Are you ready to see that opportunity that God is creating to spread the good news of Christ to those who are migrants, who are moving about the earth and who are looking for community and have no real knowledge of their purpose or why they're here? And so this pagan king, through a slave, discovers (laughs) the reality, the truth of the God of the Bible. Is that not amazing? And that his words then become incorporated in our scriptures. Is that not astounding? Amazing things that a guy who started out as a slave can do if he's faithful to the Lord. Let me skip a couple of slides. I want to get to my last slide. We'll we'll skip the ethical dimension. Lots to be said there. Let's talk about Jesus and the willing going to incarnation. Uh, We're going to read here from Philippians. If you think about it, the greatest migrant of all time was Jesus who was in heaven as God receiving the worship of the seraphim holy 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 echoing through the chambers and corridors of all of heaven Jesus the person one of the persons of the Trinity decides to leave that behind and become the ultimate migrant Becoming as a human being, becoming a God who by experience understands our sufferings and even uses his sufferings to redeem us. Let's stand and read this passage together. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. This is probably one of the most powerful passages in Scripture where Paul really reflects on what the Incarnation meant. It was a heavenly migration to an earthly hell. Giving up all of your prerogatives, and not merely that, and not even just becoming a servant, but a servant to the point of death on a cross. The scripture goes on to say, wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is uh, God, to the glory of God the Father. Um, This is our message. This is our reality. God became a migrant for our sakes and therefore we are prepared to go anywhere, wherever he may send us, as his ambassadors to take the good news of Jesus. And sometimes the hardest migration there is is to walk across the street. Think about the migration that Jesus was involved in. Far more costly, far more difficult. For us, it might just be to get up the gumption to make a batch of chocolate chip cookies and walk across the street. And that can be tough, especially if you're shy. That doesn't come easy to you. But God opens a door and says, Hey, new family moved in on your street. Go say hi. Go find a way to make them feel welcome. Bless them, because as you bless them, you express the blessings of God to them. And let's see where that leads. Well, I have a couple of final questions. Let's go to our last slide. And uh, here's a couple of things I'd like to say to you all Are you befriending the migrants in your neighborhood? You know, think about the crisis of moving and the search for community. Uh, Within five-mile radius of the church, who is moving? And I ask a rather silly question. What is the Chamber of Commerce doing? I mentioned this in our Bible study earlier. You know, every Chamber of Commerce has a welcome wagon type of work for new moved-in families so they can be introduced to uh, local businesses and local churches and other things. Are you engaged in stuff like that? Are you looking for ways to meet the new people in your community? And they don't have to be from around halfway around the world. They can be from Georgia. But they're here and they're looking for community. God has a purpose in migration all the way from Genesis 1 to that final migration where we are all gathered into the kingdom of God and in his new Jerusalem. And there I think the migration stops uh, permanently. There'll be lots of other good things to do But in the meantime, we're migrants. We are pilgrims, wanderers upon the face of this earth, set here in motion by our God to help the fellow pilgrims and wanderers find a relationship with God. I have one final invitation I want to make to the congregation. Come sit in my class on migration and ministry at CIU, Wednesdays from 2 to 4.30 p.m. in Fisher 102 at CIU. Uh, I got permission from my dean to let anybody come into this class who wants to sit in on it. And if you are a person who's free on a Wednesday afternoon and you'd like to come up and sit in on my class, we're gonna—it's not just going to be a class that I teach. I'm bringing in pastors from around the area who all have experience in how to reach out to migrants. And it could be international migrants, but it could also be people in the local—you know—people who've just moved in from Georgia or Florida or some other place. And asking the question, how can we reach out effectively to the migrants in our midst? If you'd like to come and be a part of that, uh, you're more than welcome. Now, I fully realize a lot of you are working full-time jobs, so that isn't going to be an option. So let me leave you with one final thought. You're a migrant. You're a pilgrim. You are wandering about this earth on a pilgrimage to heaven. In the midst of that pilgrimage, you're going to bump into people who are also pilgrims. Their problem is, they don't know where they're going. They don't have a purpose. And you don't know how many times I've asked a person, what's your purpose in life? Why are you here? And heard them say, I have no idea. But you do. So let me challenge you. Open your eyes and look at the pilgrims around you and ask the question, God, how would you use me like Naomi to share the good news with a Moabitess named Ruth? And it doesn't mean that you're perfect. <laughs> Remember, Naomi said, call me Mara, call me bitterness. Okay, sometimes we fall flat on our faces. But God has called you as a pilgrim to point other pilgrims to the place of safety in Christ. May God give you grace to intentionally think, pray, and act in that reality. Let's pray. God, thank you for this wonderful theme of migration in your word, that peoples from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are moving about the earth today lost, without hope. Thank you, Father, that we have a great hope in that ultimate migrant from heaven, Jesus, who came to save us. We praise you for that reality and we pray that you would make us worthy ambassadors who make that reality of Jesus plain to the fellow programs around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.